Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 140 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 1, The Flight. Truly, there never was a time when we worked in peace, without being hurried or pressured from above. The unskilled, totally bewildered, high-ranking bureaucrats believed that they are fulfilling their duties if they are shouting, Let's go, let's go! at the people who don't even have time to wipe the sweat off their brows. Those were the words of Chief Designer Vasily Mission. And these are the words of General Kamanin, the cosmonaut trainer. I am personally not fully confident that the whole program of flight will be completed successfully, although there are no sufficiently weighty grounds to object to the launch. In all the previous flights, we believed in success. Today, there is not much confidence in victory. The cosmonauts are prepared well, and the ships and the instruments have gone through hundreds of tests and verifications and all seems to have been done for successful flights. But still, there is no confidence. This can perhaps be explained by the fact that we are flying without Korolev's strength and assurances. We were spoilt by Korolev's optimism. Recapping from episode 139, the Soviets are preparing to launch Soyuz-1 on a rendezvous mission with Soyuz-2. The mission would be inaugurated by the launch of the active 7KOK Soyuz-1 on the first day with Komarov. The following day, as the ship was flying over Tyratam, the passive 7KOK Soyuz-2 would be launched with Baikovsky, Yelizhevev, and Krunov. The two spacecraft would dock on the very first orbit of the Soyuz 2. After docking, Yelizhevev and Krunov would exit from their depressurized living compartment, or the orbital module in Western vernacular, and then they would crawl over to the depressurized living compartment of Soyuz 1. Following the transfer, Soyuz 1, now with a crew of three, would return the following day, and Soyuz 2, with a crew of one, would also return that same day. On April 22, 1967, 
At 23.30 hours, the State Commission pre-launch meeting began at the firing range. Gregory Levin relayed that all chiefs and all services had given their readiness reports. They had all read the telegram signed by Aganzanov, Tregrub, and Chertok concerning the mission control readiness and the readiness of all the command and measurement complex services. On April 23rd, Kamarov woke up about two hours after midnight while doctors attached sets of medical sensors to his body. He was dressed in a plain light woolen gray suit and a blue jacket. At 0300 hours, he arrived at the pad to give a short speech addressed to State Commission Chairman Kiramov before bidding farewell. Mission, Kamanin, and Gagarin accompanied him to the rocket. Gagarin went up with him all the way to the top of the rocket and remained there until the hatch was closed. Later, Gagarin recalled, quote, I was the last one to see him alive, and I told him, See you soon. End quote. After Gagarin came down to the bunker, he and Nikolaev conversed with Komarov and exchanged information on the preparation process. Everything went without a hitch, according to schedule. All the events were also relayed to the controls group clearly and without a problem. The spacecraft 7KOK number 4 lifted off exactly on time at 0335 hours Moscow time on April 23, 1967 with its sole passenger, 40-year-old Colonel Engineer Vladimir M. Komarov. He was the first Soviet cosmonaut to make a second flight. It was the first Soviet manned flight following the death of Chief Designer Sergei Korolev and the first Soviet manned space flight in over two years. After 540 seconds of flight came the report that the vehicle had separated and entered orbit. The official Soviet news agency TASS released a brief statement calling the flight Soyuz-1 and announced orbital parameters and some vague objectives of the program. Characteristically, there was no mention of the impending Soyuz-2 mission. Rumors in the West had, however, reached crescendo proportions, some clearly indicating that a docking with a second ship was planned. Cosmonaut Popovich informed Komarov's wife, Valya, that her husband was in orbit about 25 minutes after launch. She told reporters that, quote, My husband never tells me when he goes on a business trip. End quote. Control of the flight was officially handed over to the Operations and Control Group. The flight control team was located at the Scientific Measurement Point Number 16 at Yevpatoria in the Crimea. Controls Group Chief Colonel Pavel A. Agonzanov was the flight director. He was assisted by a team of 20 controllers, including OKB-1 Deputy Chief Designer Boris Chertok, Yakov, Tregrub, and Department Chief Roschenbach. The flight control team would actively communicate with the spacecraft in orbit while maintaining continuous contact with the State Commission, all of whose members remained behind at Site 2 
at Tyratam. Additional ballistics support was provided by the N24's Military Coordination Computation Center in Moscow. Now at this point in the flight, the control group fell silent while waiting for the first telemetry and for Komarov's first reports. The first report from tracking station number 4 and tracking station number 15 was that all antennas were deployed. The left panel of the solar array had not opened yet, and they were still checking for solar current. There was the hope that the solar panel had deployed, but that the sensor wasn't functioning. The spacecraft slipped beyond the radar horizon, which stabilized after the disturbances of separation. Contact was lost for one hour until the spacecraft returned to the coverage area. Agadzinov reported to the State Commission, which was waiting in Kirillov's office, at site number two. Telemetry data indicates the deployment of the left solar array as not detected. All other parameters are normal. Cabin pressure and temperature are normal. Chief Designer Mission responded, Recheck thoroughly one more time and report. You understand that we have to make a decision about the next operation. Then came the report from the analysis group. They had discovered that the backup telemetry system antenna had failed to deploy and that the shield protecting the 45K Sunstar sensor from engine exhaust contamination had failed to retract. The solar array panel that had failed to open was in the way. The backup antenna could be dealt with, but the 45K, if it didn't find the sun and stars, there would be no spinning of the spacecraft and no solar or astral orientation for correction maneuvers. While the controls group debated how to report this to the State Commission, they gave the five-minute warning before the beginning of the communication session during the second orbit. The ballistics experts managed to break through and announce perigee 196.2 kilometers, apogee 225 kilometers, inclination 51 degrees 43 minutes, period 88.6 minutes. Of course, these parameters were very important if there was to be a rendezvous. But now, to the control team, a rendezvous was looking doubtful. Finally, there was a report from Komarov. His voice was clear and calm. The Zarya system worked well. Quote, This is Ruby. I feel fine. Cabin parameters normal. Left solar array has not opened. Spinning on the sun did not happen. Solar current, 14 amps. Shortwave communication, not operating. I tried to spin manually. Spinning did not happen. But pressure in the attitude control tanks was dropped to 180. Unconfirmed reports suggest that Komarov even tried to hit the side of his ship to jar loose the solar panel. The control team understood that with the asymmetry caused by the failure of the solar array to deploy, spinning on the sun would not be possible in automatic or in manual mode, and they reported this to the state commission. Already, 
the situation had deteriorated dramatically. Since one solar panel was not operative and the ship had failed to automatically orient the other towards the sun, power on board the ship was far below normal. Power experts at Yepatoria had calculated that the buffer batteries could operate with the current levels of power up to the 17th orbit, after which Komarov could use reserve batteries for up to two more orbits, which meant Soyuz 1 could safely operate for about a day, significantly less than the three days needed for a docking mission. In the meantime, Aganzanov told Komarov to shut down non-essential systems and try at all cost to orient the right panel toward the sun. On the third orbit, Komarov told ground control that the left solar panel was still folded against the ship and the vehicle had not oriented toward the sun. Current had stabilized at a low 14 amps, far below the requirement for a nominal flight. The 45K altitude control sensor was still inoperative. Despite the troubles, the State Commission believed that the orientation problem would be solved and recommended that preparations for the launch of Soyuz 2 be continued. Kamanin meanwhile sent Gagarin directly to Yevpatoria to assist the controls group in its operation. On the fifth orbit, Komarov attempted to manually orient the ship by using the Earth's horizon to position the vehicle at correct attitude, but he found it difficult to do so, partly because it was difficult to keep a target hold on the moving Earth. Additionally, his attempts appeared to have been overruled by the onboard control system. Apart from the astro-orientation system that used the 45K solar stellar sensor and the manual orientation system, the vehicle was also equipped with ionic sensors, but use of those also met with little success on the fifth orbit. From the seventh to the thirteenth orbit, Komarov was outside radio contact via ultra shortwave communications since the spacecraft would pass over the Atlantic and the American continent. The cosmonaut was ordered to sleep during this period, while consultations between Moscow, Tyratam, and Yevpatoria continued through the day at a feverish pitch. Most of the senior members of the State Commission, including Chairman Kiramov, Kamanin, and Keldish, recommended immediate postponement of the Soyuz 2 launch, hoping to return Komarov on the earliest possible opportunity, the 17th orbit. Incredibly, Mission still had hope and believed that the Commission should make a final decision on the 13th orbit once Yevpatoria re-established contact with Komarov. There was even a momentary plan to have the two EVA cosmonauts, Yelizhevith and Krunov, manually unfurl the jammed solar panel during their spacewalk from one ship to the other. But, on the 13th orbit, Komarov reported that his second attempt to use the ionic orientation system had failed. He added that the left solar panel was still jammed, 
and current had remained steady at 12 to 14 amps. Mission later recalled that because of the emergency, the shortage of power on board caused a chain of problems, including a change in the temperature conditions. At this point, the State Commission unanimously canceled the Soyuz 2 launch. Evidently, the Soyuz 2 cosmonauts were bitterly disappointed, blaming the Commission for excessive caution and indecisiveness. But the problem now was how to return the spacecraft from orbit, nominally on the 17th orbit, but with the 18th and 9th orbits as reserve. Agonzanov's team at Yevbatoria considered the matter carefully. There were three main failures on board Soyuz 1. The unopening of the left solar panel, the failure of the ionic orientation system, and the malfunction of the 45K solar stellar attitude control sensor. The left solar panel not only deprived the spacecraft of much-needed power, but it also caused an asymmetry in the ship that prevented the open solar panel from facing the sun. Due to this mechanical imbalance, engineers strongly believed that all of Kamarov's efforts to spin the ship in the direction of the sun would fail, and in fact, would simply waste the precious propellant in the orientation engine system. If there was too little fuel in that system, then during retrofire, Kamarov might not be able to compensate for moments arising from the mass displacement due to the single opened panel. The Soyuz had three orientation systems. If all three orientation systems were inoperative, it would be practically impossible for Kamarov to return its ship. With an incorrect attitude, Soyuz 1 would either burn up in the atmosphere or fly into a higher orbit. The ionic orientation system had already failed to perform twice. Engineers also believed that the system would be unreliable during the morning hours when the return was planned due to ion pockets that could disrupt the work of the sensors. As for the 45K solar stellar sensor, it was not functioning at all. This left manual orientation, which was working, but as Kamarov reported, it was extremely difficult to manipulate in the Earth's shadow since it would be difficult to locate the Earth's horizon. Normally, using manual orientation, the cosmonaut would cross the Earth's terminator into lighted areas. In Kamarov's case, with a re-entry at the earliest opportunity, he would still be in the dark. Time was already running short for Kamarov. If he was to perform a successful re-entry on the 17th orbit, then Agadzinov's team needed to transmit a precise set of commands to Kamarov on the 16th orbit. It was already the 15th orbit, and officials at Yevpatoria and Tyratam were still arguing over a proper choice of orientation for re-entry. It had been almost 24 hours since the launch, and not one of either the state commissions nor the chief operations and control group had slept. In their state of alarm, members continuously violated established rules to communicate only 
via secret channels between the two centers. On the 15th orbit, Kamarov reported that he believed that the ionic system and its associated attitude control engines were in working order. Based on his recommendations and assessment from data on the ground, the State Commission recommended that the ship be landed on the 17th orbit using the automatic ionic orientation with the backup set of orientation engines. Agadzinov, Rauschenbach, and Chertok carefully checked over the set of instructions that Kagarin personally transmitted to Komarov. In the final seconds before loss of contact, Mission and Kamanin both wished Komarov good luck. At the appointed time, Soyuz-1 initiated the re-entry sequence. The main engine was supposed to fire for deorbit at 0256 hours, 12 seconds, Moscow time on April 24th, but nothing happened. Ballistics reports pouring into Yevbatoria indicated that Soyuz-1's orbital parameters had remained the same. Once communication with Komarov was re-established, the cosmonaut reported that the ion system appeared to have worked fine, but evidently, as the ship had crossed the equator, it had flown into an ion pocket in the Earth's shadow, where the concentration of ions were less than what the sensors could detect. The ship's control system correctly issued a command to prohibit the firing of the retro engine. State Commission members decided to immediately begin preparations for another landing attempt on the 18th orbit, but the flight control team felt that there was not simply enough time to prepare for landing, as the 17th orbit was ending. They did not have any new instructions ready to transmit to Komarov. With time running out, the State Commission decided to land Komarov on the 19th orbit. With use of both the ionic and solar stellar orientation system out of the question, the only remaining option was for Komarov to manually orient the ship prior to retrofire, but using a very complex series of operations in orbit. Komarov would have to orient the ship manually to the Earth's horizon in the light portion of the orbit. Just before entering the Earth's shadow, he would transfer attitude control to the spaceship's KI-38 gyroscope system. Once he was out of the shadow, he would check if Soyuz-1 was still correctly oriented for retrofire. If not, he would once again take over manual control and issue all the commands to complete the retrofire sequence for a landing on the 19th orbit. It was an incredibly difficult task one which none of the cosmonauts had ever trained for on the ground. At the same time, one of the power specialists warned that Komarov had one to two orbits at most. Therefore, he might not have very many more chances to attempt re-entry. Gagarin once again transmitted the new set of instructions to Soyuz-1. Komarov seemed calm and agreed to carry out all the operations on time. The initiation of the 152nd retro burn was set for 0557 hours 15 seconds on April 24th. Kamarov performed brilliantly and carried out his assigned program almost to the letter. 
and replied through the increasing static that, quote, the engine worked for 146 seconds. Switch-off occurred at 0.559 hours 38.5 seconds. At 0.14 hours 9 seconds, there was the command, Accident 2, end quote. Naturally, controllers were alarmed by the Accident 2 message, but Rauschenbach gathered his resolve and explained to the team not to worry. The attitude control system had evidently been unable to handle the strong movements due to the asymmetry of the vehicle, and the gyroscopes had issued the Accident 2 command after the spacecraft deviated from its set angle by 8 degrees. That only meant that instead of a guided re-entry, Komarov would perform a direct ballistic return. All other parameters, such as the length of the burn, were well within range for a successful re-entry. Just then, a report came over the loudspeaker. We have separation initiated by heat sensors. The time was 0615 hours 14 seconds. The analysis group managed to figure out and report that the gyroscope KI-38 went into 8-degree contact at 06.14.09. The approach and the correction engine functioned normally and separation occurred. At 06.22, air defense troop facilities detected the descent module and confirmed the ballistics expert's prediction. The descent module was headed for a landing 65 kilometers east of Orsk. The calculated time of landing was 06.24 hours. At this point, the mission control team did not expect anyone to report from the landing site. The state commission no longer needed them. Even Gagarin was unable to find out over the complex Air Force communication system how the landing had gone. He said, quote, You'll never find out anything from General Kustasen's search and rescue service. No one will get a clear answer from him until he reports to the commander-in-chief, end quote. The control group did manage to find out from a representative at the firing range that according to General Kutansen's report, the search and rescue service located the descent module on its parachute east of Orsk. The state commission departed, some for the landing site and some for Moscow. On behalf of the entire control team management, Aganzanov congratulated and thanked all those involved in the continuous round-the-clock watch, and he warned that after a brief rest, by the end of the day, each group must submit a report. The station chief requested that all present report to the dining hall at 8 a.m. for a good breakfast. The control group accepted his offer with great enthusiasm. Leaving the duty officer to receive communications, they each went their separate ways to freshen up before their festive breakfast. The breakfast was really excellent, especially since bottles of Gregorian wine from the military brasses special stash reserved only for the arrival of the entire state commission at the station appeared on the table. After satiating the first pangs of hunger and thirst, the control team finally felt they could relax. 
Vying with each other for a chance to speak, each of them spoke about their experiences. They picked apart the designers of the systems that had put them through all this trouble in a critical situation. Kagarin did not pass up the opportunity. Turning to Rauschenbach and Chertok, with a cagey grin, he said, quote, What would you have done without a man on board? Your ionic system proved unreliable, the 45K sensor failed, and you still don't trust cosmonauts. End quote. With light-hearted debates in full swing, an officer entered and told Gagarin he had an urgent call. It's probably Moscow, someone guessed. Now we will find out about the arrangements for the reception in Moscow. About ten minutes later, Gagarin returned. His usual genial smile was gone. He said, quote, I've been ordered to leave immediately for Orsk. The landing was off nominal. That's all I know. End quote. of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.